Good morning. Happy Sabbath. You may take a seat. We want to welcome you to GYC's Sabbath School program. How many of you have been blessed here at GYC this week? I have been very, very blessed. And we want to thank you all for um, being here this morning. We also want to welcome our international and national audience who's watching by Three Angels Broadcasting Network. My name is Stacey Osterman. I am the Bible Work Coordinator for the Michigan Conference, and I'm going to be the moderator for our panel discussion this morning. But I have some friends here with me, and I want to just give them a moment to tell you who they are. My name is Eugene Pruitt. I'm a his- teacher of church history at Washtenaw Hills College. My name is Stephen Conway. I am the Director of Pastoral Care at uh, Campus Ministries. My name is Allison Waters, and I'm a massage therapist in Montana, and I am also involved in the Ministry of Restoration International. My name is Alan Parker, and I'm a teacher in the School of Religion at Southern Adventist University. And this morning, we are all here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When you came here to Minnesota, to Minneapolis, I wonder if you realized that a significant event in Adventist history took place here 120 years ago, or nearly 120 years ago, the Minneapolis Convention of 1888. It was a general conference session with delegates that came from across North America, as well as um, representing you know, different um, church leaders. And, of course, at every general conference session, they have some business that takes place as well as theology issues. But what we're going to be doing this morning is talking about the history of what happened here in 1888, taking it from it some of the lessons that we can learn for our lives today, and most importantly, talking about the subject of righteousness by faith, which was the main theme of the presentations that were presented there. But before we do any of that, we want to have a prayer and ask God to be with us. So I'm going to ask Pastor Conway to do that for us. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to be alive today and to be here in this place at such a time as this. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us. And we pray that our discussion today might be with clarity and that it may help each and every one better understand just what it means to experience Christ and his righteousness. We thank you for hearing this prayer, not because we are worthy, but because Jesus is. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, as we begin here, I have a couple questions I want to ask you, questions that will hopefully make you think. In your Christian experience, in your personal journey with God, have you ever asked yourself a question like this? Am I good enough to be saved? If those who go to heaven must be holy and without sin, how am I ever going to get there? How can I experience consistent victories in my life when I find myself on a constant roller coaster of sinning and then repenting and then sinning again and then repenting? And is it really even possible to follow the Bible command that says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect? I don't know about you, but these are questions I have asked myself um, at times. And they are questions that have very, very deep um, importance and need to be answered. We're going to attempt to give you some of the foundation to find the answers to those questions this morning as we study this topic. But before we do that, we must realize that some of the answers began there in this convention that took place here in 1888. And 
Let me begin by asking the panel, what was so pivotal about the year 1888? What was happening in the Adventist church just prior to that that set the stage for something dramatic? First, in 1888, there was a national Sunday law before Congress. Can you imagine how the church was feeling ready for something big to happen with that event going on? And at the same time, the leaders of the church were trying to defend our doctrines against attack. But in that process, many times hard feelings had been rising. A spirit was creeping into to their work that was not in harmony with what Jesus wanted. So we had a group of things that were happening, you know, in the church that kind of was setting the stage for it. And we know that when they met here, that there was a lot of um, prominent church leaders, including people like Ellen White and um, Butler and Uriah Smith. There were also two um, very young presenters, um, A.T. Jones and E.G. Wagner. And who were these young men and what did they talk about? What did they contribute to this convention? Wagner was a physician. Jones was a history teacher. But just before the convention, they both were editors of the magazine Signs of the Times. They had been commissioned there to teach the gospel to non-Adventists and to the church. Can I share a scripture that they were using? Turn to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're looking at verse 1. We're looking at something that was shared by these two young men, their early 30s, that might have helped the church leaders overcome those hard feelings. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Can you see in the verse, had Paul preached this gospel before? Had they received this gospel before? Were they being faithful to this gospel? Then why was he telling it to them again? Look at verse 2. By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. The idea of this passage is that the gospel affects us when it's in our mind, when, it's, when it has our attention. God used Jones and Wagner to bring gospel thoughts into the full attention of these men to re-soften their hearts, to bring them into a conversion experience with him. Let's look at one more passage. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 4. Wagner had written a book that eventually became The Glad Tidings. One of the very first thoughts comes from this passage. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Wagner reasoned like this. If you purchase something that cost a great deal, the amount you pay for it is evidence of how much you want it. Can we ask a question like this? Does Jesus really want us? Will he take our sins? Am I so bad that he won't want me? Wagner said, well, look at the evidence. What did Jesus pay for the privilege of taking your sins? He gave himself. And if he gave that much, who can doubt that he's willing to receive that thing he's paid so much for? Amen. So it sounds like the messages that Jones and Wagner were presenting were very Christ-centered and gospel-centered. 
And they were young people that God was using in a powerful way to preach a message that the church really needed to hear at that time. Now, I would assume that this message that was so positive and Christ-centered was received readily and with great um, excitement and joy by those that were there, right? In one answer, no. <laughs> Uh, the, the delegates were not excited about this message. Uh, and there were a number of reasons for that. It was a clash of paradigms. The older generation, if you want to call it that, they had been standing forward for truth, for the Sabbath, uh, fighting a number of heresies. And, and the, this younger group, Jones and Wagner, were coming in and saying, look, we've got a, a whole new way of looking at things. And there was a clash of these paradigms. And then some of the ways that Jones and Wagner had gone about this to begin with, some of their articles had sparked controversy. And, you know, you don't become a reformer unless you have a fairly strong personality. And so they had these strong personalities. They wrote these, these passionate articles, but it riled some of the brethren. And so they got excited about this. They were handing out booklets and pamphlets against some of the things that Jones and Wagner were speaking about. And so you had the clash of paradigms, and then you had these personalities that kind of clashed as well. And yet we, we wouldn't want to say that the personalities are the reason the message was rejected. Who chose these men? God. Doesn't God choose his own messengers? Amen. He chooses who he wants. He chooses people like he wants. And the responsibility is left with us to accept the message of Jesus through those he chooses to send it through. So that brings us to a very good question. You know, we've been here at GYC this week hearing different presentations, different messages that God is wanting us to hear. Could we be in danger today of sometimes rejecting a message that God is sending because we don't quite like the personality style, the person who presents it, or we know something about them that makes us feel a little uncomfortable with them? Definitely. You know, I believe every one of us here have felt the Holy Spirit working on our hearts in a very powerful way. And when we come under conviction... Satan often comes in with distractions, and he wants to get us distracted from the point of the message to look to the messenger. Oh, they have this problem or that problem, or I don't really like this about their personality. And so we start to undermine the message because of something else that God has brought to our heart as something that we need to deal with in our lives. And so I would encourage all of us, today if you hear his voice, Harden not your heart. Don't look at the messenger. Listen to the message from God that speaks spoken to your heart because he's calling to you because he wants a relationship with you. And we cannot afford to do what happened in this, this time period of 1888 of rejecting the Spirit's call to their hearts. How, go ahead. There is a principle related to this rejecting the power of the Spirit. In a sermon you hear, if God is convicting you this much and you reject that, then you are hardened that much. But what would happen if he convicted you with great power? You know, in that moment, you can be hardened to a great extent. There is a wonderful privilege and a terrible danger in hearing a message of power from God. So the greater the intensity of the message and the conviction you feel, the more urgent it is to respond and obey to what God is telling you to do. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're in very great danger. Now, how did um, Jones and Wagner respond to this? Here they were two young men, one a medical student, one of them a, a teacher. Um, and here they present this message that God's put on their heart, and the church brethren as a whole flatly refused to listen and were pretty upset with them. So what did these young men do? Did they just go back to California, go back to writing for the signs of the times and just kind of forget about what God had put on their heart? Well, I think the key point that you brought out, Stacy, 
is that uh, God had placed a heavy burden upon the hearts of these young men. Uh, when the Lord places something on our hearts, it is extremely difficult for us to keep quiet. In effect, it's like fire in our bones. Jones and Wagner couldn't keep quiet. They continued to preach the message of righteousness by faith, which spoke about the righteousness of Jesus Christ being given as a gift to humanity. And uh, a lot of their focus was on the part that the cross played in that wonderful transaction. Now, this term righteousness by faith, I've heard this term before, you know, kind of growing up in the Adventist church, but it sounds like one of those like really big theological terms, you know, and how, what does righteousness by faith mean if I had to give a definition? Maybe the easiest way to take a big complex term like that would be to break it apart. What is righteousness? What is faith? How do you get righteousness through faith? So maybe we should do that at this point. What is righteousness? How does the Bible define righteousness? Okay, well, let's take a look in our Bibles again. Okay. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 119. Psalms 119. And I love this because um, <laughs> the question that you ask, Stacy, is answered in a very straightforward way. Psalm 119. And we'll take a look at verse 172. The Bible says there in verse 172, My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. The commandments of God, according to Psalm 119, verse 172, are righteousness. But I want to bring out another aspect of that okay. as well. If we could go to Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51. And I, the reason I want to impress this is because I think it's important for us to understand that this is not just something that we can hang on our refrigerators and, and have as a checklist. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 7, the Bible says, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revelings. I think this is a very important point about the righteousness of God. Again, it's not something that is hung as a checklist on the refrigerator, but it is the law of God as revealed in the heart of humanity. Yeah, you could also look at it from, from the other side. What is unrighteousness? And again, you can find the same kind of definitions. You know, First uh, John chapter five verse seventeen says that unrighteousness is sin. Then you look at First John three verse four. What is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. And so, when you put that together, you can see unrighteousness equals transgression of the law. Righteousness equals obedience to the law. And so, you, it's just nice to put those two equations together and see how they match. If we want righteousness, we need to have obedience to the law. Okay, now this brings me to a very good question. If righteousness is perfect conformity to the law of God, what, well, there's a problem there because Romans chapter 3 makes it very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory or the righteousness of God and that no one is perfect. Mm -hmm. So when I look at my life, I don't see perfect righteousness and perfect conformity to the law of God. So uh, what am I going to do about that? How do I get righteousness? Turning your Bibles with me to 
Philippians 3 verse 9. Philippians 3 9 says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Mm -hmm. So here we're finding a very important key because we cannot have this experience without Christ. We have to have faith in him and an experience in him. So, I'm so Allison, you're saying that the key to experience righteousness in my life is through faith. Okay, so that brings me now to another question. What is faith? I know Hebrews 11.1 1, that says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But what does that mean in my life? What is the faith that I have to have that will help me to get righteousness? This has to be my favorite theme in sharing the Bible. I remember so well when I finally understood what faith is. Can we look at a verse? Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 38. Hebrews 10, verse 38. We're trying to understand what it means to live by faith. The passage says, Now the just shall live by faith. How do you live in this verse? You live by faith. Keep the thought in your mind and turn to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, verse 4. We just read that the just live by faith. Now the temptation of Jesus, he says something. Matthew 4 and the fourth verse. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Think about it. In Hebrews 10, the just live by faith. In Matthew 4, we live by every word that proceeds from the word of God. Either there are two ways to live, or these are synonymous ideas. Living by faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can't see that book, can you? Maybe you could on the screen. This is Lessons on Faith. You can get this book at so many places. A Google search will help you find it. Wagner and Jones gave a series of articles that explained faith this way. I'm reading to you from the back. It's from page 15. Faith is depending upon the word of God only and expecting that word only to do what the word says. So we could say that faith then is taking the word of God and what it says and saying, I depend on that and I expect that word to be realized in my life. Could I apply that principle? Let's say I was reading 1 John 1 9 that says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm thinking, there's so much unrighteousness in my life. Could I take that concept and say, if faith is depending on the word and expecting the word to do what it says, that when I confess my sins at that moment, I'm not only cleansed, but I'm made righteous. Amen. I like that. Amen. You know, I, I think that the reason that many of us lack faith in our daily experience is because we're not spending time in the Word. If faith is from the Word of God and living by the Word of God only, then we need to know what the Word says to us personally. Amen. This is not just something that's been written of great stories of men of old, of experiences that they had with God back in ancient ages. This is a fresh word for us today. These experiences are here to strengthen our faith in, in Jesus Christ and what he will do in our lives. But we must take time for him to read this word so that it can become a part of our life. 
And I would encourage you to make the commitment that God has challenged me with, to take him first in the morning, spending time with him every day. He says, seek me first. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You've probably recited that verse a hundred times in your life. What does that mean? Do you really believe that? If you really do, then you will lay your life on that. You will realize if I seek God first... That means taking time with him in the morning, spending time in his word, praying until you are confident in God. This is what revitalizes your faith in him. This is what motivates you to be able to live the real Christian life, to be a Christian like we're talking about at this conference. And I made a commitment when I was going to school that even with all of the things that I was going through there, I would continue to keep God first in my life, in my devotional life, because that was my source of strength for the day. And, you know, that was going great until I had a final exam in one of my courses. And I was really tempted that morning when I got up to study just a little more. I had been doing my part by studying before, but, you know, every last second I need to get ready for this test. And, you know, immediately God brought back to my mind, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Allison, do you really believe it? Will you continue to keep the commitment you've made before me? And I made a faith decision right then. Yes, Lord, I will. And do you know, I took that time with God. I was strengthened for the day. And the Lord gave me all the help I needed for my exam. Everything went very well. And it again proved to me that we can live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This reminds me of that text in Romans ten seventeen. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. If you want faith in your life, you have to be spending time in the Word of God. No Word, no faith. And, therefore, no righteousness, right? Because that's what we've been saying. So how does faith lead to righteousness? What would be probably the most classic Bible example of faith leading to righteousness? Well, I don't know if it's the most classic. However, it might be. It's found in Romans chapter 4, and it's the story of Abraham. Can we look there? In Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 8, beginning with verse 18. And it says, Who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore... It was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. I believe that is uh, one of the most classic or beautiful examples in the scripture of how an individual receives faith. And the Bible is, is sure, Paul is sure to point out in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham couldn't produce what God had promised. Amen. He simply had to accept it and believe that God was able to perform what he had promised. Amen. I love in that passage the things that Abraham doesn't pay any attention to. You know, he doesn't pay any attention to his own weakness. 
He doesn't pay any attention even to how his wife had laughed at the promise of God. He's not thinking about the obstacles because he has the word of God to think about. Amen. And that is his stability. Amen. Amen. So Abraham is not looking at his circumstances. He's not looking at all the reasons why he shouldn't believe. He's taking the promise that God has given him. And that alone is sufficient enough for him to have the faith. And it's that dependence on the word that leads to righteousness in his life. You know, I think this is a great example of faith. But to me, what builds off of this, what's even more powerful, is how that, the example of Abraham is used in Hebrews chapter 11. Because now he has the son of the promise. He's, he's cried with this baby. He's laughed with the baby. He's helped this baby to become everything that, is, that this baby needs to be to be the father of the nations. And so he is, is spending time with his one and only son. And then God says, take your only son and sacrifice him. And, and to me, the incredible faith is he says, I am willing to sacrifice everything in order to receive whatever God wants to give me. And it, it's that point of giving up everything that, that reminds me of a definition of faith in the book Desire of Ages, page 347. It says, saving faith is a transaction. And what I think of it by transaction, I'm going to use Allison here. I'm going to give you my car. And um, Allison, here it is. Here's, here are the keys to my car. It's yours. Thank you. I believe it. Does she really believe it? Does she believe that I'm giving her the car? Why not? Why doesn't she believe it? It's because she hasn't accepted it. Go ahead. Now, of course... I know we're on 3ABN and everyone can see that I've just given her my car, but you understand in the real world this doesn't happen. <laughs> but in the spirit, thank you, in the spiritual world, it does. God offers us a gift. But in order to have that gift, we have to accept it. Now, more than that, I think accepting this gift means there's a transaction that takes place. We must give all, as Steps to Christ says, in order that we may take all. I come from Africa, and they tell me, I've never done it myself, that you can catch a monkey by hollowing out a gourd, cutting a hole in the top, and you make it just wide enough for a monkey to put its hand through it. You put some nuts in the bottom of that gourd, the monkey can stick its hand through and grab those nuts. Now, when it does so, it makes a fist with those nuts inside, and it can't pull its hand out. And they tie the gourd to a tree, and that dumb monkey will keep holding on to those nuts, even though he will lose his freedom. In the same way, you know, we are sinners. We just have to give up on ourselves and our unrighteousness and on all the things that are closest to us. We have to let go of the nuts in order to grasp the freedom and the righteousness that God offers. So saving faith is more than just depending on the word to do what the word says, but it's also a transaction. Where could we go in Scripture to find out how we do that transaction of giving to God our sinfulness so that he can give us his righteousness? Zechariah 3. Okay, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3, starting with verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, 
and was standing before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So what are we seeing happening in this story about Joshua the high priest? The first thing I notice is that Satan tells the truth. Okay, Satan is telling the truth here, actually. He accuses Joshua of being a very wicked man. Okay, so Joshua is wearing what kind of clothes? Filthy garments, right? So in that case, um, Satan is true. But does the Lord rebuke Joshua for wearing filthy clothes? He doesn't. I mean, that's, that's the surprising thing, is that he rebukes Satan. He says, Satan, you, you have said the truth, but you're not justified in accusing, because that's Satan's job, you're not justified in accusing Joshua because I have a plan. Amen. Now, who is the one that removes the clothes from Joshua, these filthy clothes? It's very apparent to me that only God could do that. Because Joshua cannot do it himself, right? That's true. And I love the way Zechariah gets involved in his own prophecy. When he says, put a mitre on him. Who's Joshua? Isn't he the high priest? Mm -hmm. And the high priest is to have a mitre that says, holiness to the Lord. Amen. So that the prophecy shows that the righteousness of Jesus is not just a covering of forgiveness for my sins, but it's a filling of me, my experience, that creates a holy life. Amen. And notice after God gives Joshua his righteousness in his mind and his heart, he then asks him in verse 7, Now walk in my ways and keep my commands, and you will one day stand among these here. God does not ask Joshua to be obedient to the commandments until he's given him his righteousness, because he knows before that it would have been an impossibility for Joshua to obey. So a very powerful um, thought there. Let me ask this question. How is it that we are going to be motivated to want to experience this transaction in our life? I think we have to go to the cross. That was Wagner and Jones. They kept coming back to the cross. It was the the central aspect was the cross. And it's as we look at the cross that God does something to us. It's something profound that happens at the cross that changes our entire paradigm of, of how we serve him and why we serve him. A passage that's key on this is Hebrews 12. Let's okay. turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, and looking at verse 2, we've commented already or alluded to the idea that through the cross we have forgiveness, that Jesus died for our sins. There's something more there that's related to my life. Verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This idea is so precious to me. Jesus didn't just start a work in me, but he's going to finish that work. He died for me when I wasn't looking at him, but I am to look at him. What does that do? Look at verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your mind. The cross is my source of motive power. 
if I don't want to be a Christian, there's still hope. I can look to Calvary until I do. I can look at what Jesus did and it will move me. This is how faith works. Faith works by love to purify the soul. You know, I think another another good point there is uh, what Jesus said himself. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. And then, of course, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ constraineth us. Amen. I love the uh, illustration given by Elder Frazee. And he talks about you go and you visit somebody in their home and they've got this beautiful vase sitting on uh, the mantelpiece and you pick it up and as you're examining it, the worst thing happens. It slips out of your hands and falls to the floor and breaks into a thousand pieces. Now you feel really badly, but you figure, well, what's it worth? It's probably $20. And so the, you know, the, the hostess walks back in and you say, I'm so sorry about this, but I'll, I'll repay. I'll, I'll go and buy another vase and I'll make it right. And what's it worth? $20 or so. And she says, no, this is one of a kind. There's only two of them in the whole world. I guess it wouldn't be one of a kind then. <laughs> so they have, they, there's just this unique vase, and it's incredibly expensive. She says it will cost $10,000 to replace it. Then Elder Frazee asked the question, do you feel more sorry now than you did before? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to the cross, when we realize <clears throat> what the cross has cost Jesus, it should make us to feel sorry for sin and to turn from it. And this brings out a very um, powerful thought. Not long ago, I was looking at the Peter's ladder there in Second Peter's chapter 1. And it mentions the different rungs of the ladder as representing our stages of Christian growth. It starts off with faith because faith is at the foundation. And then you have things like um, knowledge and patience and such like that. Then you get to godliness. And you would think godliness would be the top of the ladder, right? Because godliness is righteousness and it's being like Christ. And you think that would be like the ultimate perfection. But there's two rungs after that. Brotherly kindness and love. Why is love at the top of the ladder? The only thing that I could conclude is this. What is going to keep us faithful for eternity once we get to heaven? It's not going to be godliness. Because was Lucifer godly before he sinned? Were the angels that fell from heaven godly? What about Adam and Eve? Were they created godly? So godliness alone won't keep us faithful for eternity. Only one thing will, and that is the cross. Love. Reminding ourselves of what Jesus did, which is why he will wear the signs of his sacrifice for eternity. So we never forget the love that will compel us to be faithful. I now have another question. We've read the story of the cross so very many times. And sometimes we maybe get a little bored with it. How do we keep the cross before us if it's the love of the cross, the love of Jesus, that's going to keep me faithful and righteous? When I, when I think about what distracts me from the love of the cross, I realize, have you ever tried to watch a movie and then read your Bible? <laughs> you know, you watch four hours of movies and then you try and pick up your Bible. It just doesn't come alive anymore. I think our imaginations have become perverted. And we're going back to that original text in 1 Corinthians 15, bringing back into memory the gospel. There's this little quote that I love. If it, We would do well to spend a thoughtful hour every day letting our imagination grasp every scene that leads to Calvary. And, and that's what I believe we need to do, is go back 
to the sanctified word, leave aside the music and the movies, and start letting our imagination grasp the scenes of Calvary and really just focus on it. Because when we do, if you read the Garden of Gethsemane and the Desire of Ages and you don't cry, you're spending too long in the movie house. That's deep, isn't it? (laughs) But I think you're very right on. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, By beholding we become changed. If we're beholding the love of Christ, we're going to become changed by the love of Christ. If we're beholding something else, we're going to become like that. As we get here toward the end, righteousness by faith, we find, is something that's a powerful necessary, essential for us to be prepared for heaven. How do we experience this in our daily life? How have you, as panelists, experienced the righteousness of Christ in your own personal journey and walk with God? I want to have a a couple minutes here to be able to share our own personal journeys in this area. Well, I'd just like to share one experience that just came out of the recent time in my life. I have so many experiences with the Lord that have encouraged my faith in Him. But recently I was caring for my grandfather, who's um, very far gone with his Alzheimer's. And he doesn't really know what he's doing a lot of times. And he went through a short phase where um, it was necessary to stay up with him almost all night because of some situations that were going on. And um, I found myself getting more and more and more tired. And I don't know about you, but when the more tired you get, sometimes the harder it is to be really patient. And I was doing really good with my own patience for a while until um, about 5 o'clock in the morning. And he started another behavior. And, of course, he has no clue what he's doing. He's just precious and innocent. But I felt something turn on inside of me, feelings that I knew didn't belong to a Christian. Now, I mean, I can bite my tongue and say, I'm not going to get frustrated at what my grandfather's doing. But is that victory to the core? When I know inside, my heart is stirred like the sea of Galilee that was foaming. I needed Christ's power in my life right now because I want victory to the core. I don't want this Christianity that's just a plastic face on the outside. I want real Christianity that changes me on the inside. I want living faith that revolutionizes my life. And I felt that feeling and I thought, I don't want that, but I can change it. I can't change it. And I called out for a power outside and above myself, the power of God, because he can. He stilled the storm on that sea by his word. And that same word will still the storm in my inward heart. And I just um, said, Lord, please give me more grace. It was absolutely amazing. I accepted that grace. I made a choice. God has given each one of us a free will choice. If we will accept to use that choice and accept his changing power, he will immediately take possession of us. He said he commanded and it stood fast. He spoke, and it was done. Immediately I felt the change take place in my heart, and I had the strength I needed to go carry on with my grandfather, not biting my tongue, but God changed my heart. I was so thankful again for the privilege of being able to care for my grandfather. It was amazing, and it encouraged my faith so much. I mean, it's just a little experience. I was only home by myself with Grandpa. Nobody else knew, but I knew that God was with me, and he was changing my heart, and he was giving me victory over the very depths of what I was dealing with inside. And I thought, wow, we serve a creationary God who spoke and it was done, not an evolutionary God, one who wants to change us today. Now, if we will, by faith, take hold of him, then we will experience the fruits of righteousness in our lives automatically because faith 
and righteousness are absolutely inseparable. We cannot be righteous without faith. And we have to have faith in Jesus in order to be righteous. They go hand in hand. And God wants to do that in every one of our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Allison, for that story. It just tells me that whatever we are struggling with in our life, it may be impatience with somebody who is not able to really communicate very well with us. It may be um, a stressful situation that we have at, at work. It could be um, a roommate that really gets on our nerves. Um, it could be a parent who we have a hard time relating to. There may be many different things in our lives that we struggle with. But we've learned this morning the secret to experience daily victory in our lives. It comes first through faith. That is the foundation of everything. Taking the word of God. I want to encourage you to do something I've been doing this year in my life. I've been um, struggling with some things in my life with believing God can do the impossible in a certain situation in my life. And I start taking promises in scripture. My faith was so weak. I just had struggled so hard to believe that God could answer and change my impossible situation. So I started taking promises and I started claiming them. And as I did, I went from having zero faith that God could do that miracle in my life to, at this point, knowing God can and will do that thing in my life. And it's, I can't imagine the difference that has happened in my life since last GYC. This all happened since last GYC. And my faith has grown as I've taken the promises. Go to God. Share with him honestly the area of your life you're struggling with. Ask him to show you the promises in his word that will give you the victory. Claim those promises. Read them. Write them down. Memorize them. (laughs) Because you're going to need to remind yourself of them again and again. And then as you do that, depending on the word, giving to God everything, surrendering, that transaction we talked about, surrendering to him every idol, every feeling of doubt, When you're like, I failed in this area how many times? I just know I'm going to fail again. That's doubt, right? That's not faith. No, from this point on, I am going to be a victorious Christian by the power of God through the word. It's going to change me. It's going to recreate inside of me living faith. And when we do that, we are going to experience in our life on a daily basis the righteousness of Christ. We are going to be transformed into his image from glory to glory. And as it says in 1 John chapter 3, in fact, let's go there as we get ready to end here. 1 John chapter 3, this is a beautiful promise and one I want to end with. 1 John chapter 3, let's begin verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It's not yet been revealed to us what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As you behold the love of God for you, You can know that even though right now you can't see what you're going to be, you can know that you're going to be changed into his image. And you're going to be purified so that you can see him just as he is when he returns here very, very soon.
The lessons taught in the 1888 Minneapolis Convention were powerful. We could have missed them. We did miss them 120 years ago. Let's not miss those principles in our lives today. Well, we're just closing up here in Sabbath School. We had a Sabbath School panel here with Stacey Osterman. Hope you enjoy that. I don't know if you guys can hear, but here in the auditorium, when a lot of young people are, are flipping through Scripture, it's just a wonderful right. song. Justin, it's a high Sabbath. It's not yes. just the Sabbath blessing, but it's the GYC blessing on the Sabbath. I'm so excited. I think they're praying right now. But we're going to cut to a little video that we had, an uh, interview with Christina Reeve. And uh, while they're praying here, why don't you enjoy that video? I'm sitting here with Christina Reeves. Hi, Christina. Hi. Thank you for being here. Uh, Christina is from Washington State, and she has been at every general youth conference since they began in 2001. But her stories as how God blessed her and brought her here uh, are each year different because financially speaking, this was not an easy commitment that she was able to make, and it was something you stepped out in faith. And made every, was it the first year in faith or every year in faith? Every year. Every year in faith. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my first year at GYC, I was very leery. Um, when I first heard about it, um, my cousin, who was my college teacher, Eugene Pruitt, he told me about GYC. And I was like, well, you know, groups of young people. Uh, I haven't really been in a lot of young people groups where there's really a spiritual focus and where mm -hmm. it's really something that would be a blessing to my spiritual development. Yeah. And the money, of course, was another thing. Is like, Lord, is this really something I should do? And my cousin actually stepped out and helped me with my plane ticket. And so I went. And after my experience at GYC, I was like, this is where I need to be every year and not just this year. And so each year, even though I was a college student and finances were tight, Every year I would register in faith, and God always provided the funds. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I was reading a little while ago, a little while back, about the manna that God sent. And I always had this idea that the manna fell and, and, and lay there uh, to be gathered, and, and everyone gathered it in every day as sort of a, you know, if you pick up your food and, and you begin to eat it. But for some reason, uh, as I read this, I understood the story in a new way, understood the details in a new way, and I found that the manna was like small seeds that you had to gather, and then you had to pound, and then you had to make these little you know, loaves of cake or bread or, or what have you out of it. So it was, it was a gift. And one of the things you wrote in your story is that God has given you the finances. But he gave them to you a little bit the way he provided the manna. What are some of the, yes. the things that you gathered your finances from? Well, this year especially it was hard for me because I graduated from college in May. And I had health problems. And so I wasn't able to actually go into a full-time job like I had planned on. And so I went home and I started praying about GYC. That was the first thing that I started praying about. I was like, Lord, I don't have a job. And I need to go to GYC. How are you going to provide the money for this? I'm willing to take any little job that you put in my path. And God was faithful. He provided um, uh, two different occasions where I was able to house it for neighbors. And friends started calling me up and asking me if I could give them a massage. Mm -hmm. And people started calling me asking me, you know, could you babysit my kids? Um, could you give my children piano lessons? Well, I'm no licensed piano teacher. I had never done such a thing in my life. But um, through each of those little things, by God's grace, I was able to pay my last penny off for GYC 
just before I got on the plane to fly out here. So that was like yesterday? That was like yesterday. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's so. wonderful. And, and so sometimes God answers prayers with great miraculous um, deliverance. And sometimes he answers them a bit at a time. That's right. With just what we need, just when we need it. And that's been more your experience. Yes, that's, definitely. That's wonderful. Well, now tell us, the first year you came here, what did you see? You, you mentioned seeing a group of youth that was different than your usual expectation when the group of youth got together. What yes. did you see there? I saw a group of young people that were on fire for God, that uh, getting our own spiritual lives in harmony with God and using our... Um, consecrated lives to reach others hmm. is what just really inspired me because it's something that we all want. We want to be like Christ and we want to spread that message to others and to be able to come together with a whole group of young people who have that same goal in mind when, you know, maybe at home you may, there may you might be the only one in your town with that. Right. Um, and so it's just been such a blessing for me. So something like uh, when God said to Elijah, I have yet 4,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal, coming together with people who love God That's right. and want to do His work gives you the encouragement Amen. Yes. to go on. So you would, you would encourage others to come here? Definitely. In fact, every year since that first GYC, I have uh, recruited other young people to come, and this year included. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.